0: You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. One of the most important and climactic parts of the story of the gospel comes in a very quiet conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And he looks at the disciples and he asks a very simple question. He says, what do people say about me? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples start responding, going through the gauntlet of all the things that they've heard people say about Jesus. And they say, well, some people think that maybe you're John the Baptist or that you're Elijah or one of the prophets. There's a lot of rumors out there about who you are. And then Jesus takes the question and he turns it and he says, okay, Who do you say that I am? And Simon, so often bold and passionate, steps out as the voice of of the disciples. He steps out and he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. You're the one that was promised through all of those prophets. You're the one in whom we're gonna put all of our faith. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right. And man, you are so blessed because this isn't something that you came up with, this isn't something that you thought of on your own, but this is something that God has revealed to you. Because even though you're the son of Jonah here in this world, you are a child of God. And he looks at him after Simon gives this incredible confession of faith and recognition of the identity of Jesus. He looks at him and he says, your your name is Peter. And on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. And so we see Jesus not only call this man blessed, not only give him the praise and, and, and adulation of someone who sees, the, at least in part, the plan of God and that Jesus is the son of God, but he gives Peter a new identity. And when we looked last week at How we, as followers of Christ, who recognize Jesus as the Son of God, are able to combat the enemies, the spiritual enemies of Christ. One of the places, one of the battlefields in which we saw that fight being fought comes in identity. In the identity of who we are as children of God. But to stand firm in our identity and to stand firm in that battle against the enemy who lies about us and tries to lead us down a path of of doubting our worth to God and doubting our ability to do things for the kingdom, to be able to stand firm in our identity, we first have to know what that identity is as followers of Jesus. And thankfully, we see that here in the pages of the book of Revelation. Revelation. Because just like as Peter saw the revelation of who Jesus was, the son of God, that changes his identity. Now here, as we see the full revelation of Jesus Christ as the king of kings and Lord of lords, as revelation reveals to us who Jesus is, Jesus now starts to reveal to us who we are as followers of him. And so we're going to look at Revelation chapter 14. And we're gonna read verses one through 13 here and see what Revelation says about the people of God and their identity. John says, then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters And like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne. And before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who had not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits from God for the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made Heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. And another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, she who has made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. (laughs) Father God, we thank you so much for just this incredible picture of identity changed. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus, the eternal promise and reward that comes with salvation. God, we thank you for forgiveness. But we also thank you for the radical change that happens in each of our lives as we trust in and follow after Jesus in salvation. That the old has passed, that the new has come. That you write on us a new name. You give us a new identity and a new purpose, God. And so I pray first and foremost that if anyone is here this morning who's never put their faith and their hope in you, God, that the gospel, the good news of how much you love them and what you did for them through Jesus would just penetrate into their heart and that they would trust in you for salvation and that we would see baptism and new life. And God, for those who are here who trust in you, I pray today that you just remind them of who they are not who they think they are, not who other people may say they are, but who they are as your children, bought and redeemed with the blood of your son, made to worship you and whole in your presence. And that's who we're going to be for the rest of forever. So God, speak your word into our hearts, teach us through your spirit, and help us to live life the way that you see us. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So real quick, let me apologize for my deeper voice today. It's just that time of year, and I'm coughing and hacking. I was a little nervous that I wasn't going to have any of it, and it's a little sad that this isn't one of those really heavy, dark, kind of violent-sounding passages because now that I'm in this nice deep register, it could have really resonated talking about horsemen of the apocalypse. (laughs) But this is an exciting passage of scripture. And we're we're on the upkick here in the book of Revelation as we've seen the heaviness and the weight of God's judgment and wrath, as we've seen the heaviness of these enemies of God coming against him. We have a few more chapters where we see God begin to systemically and systematically eliminate those enemies all the way through and bring about this new creation. And then we get to celebrate the beauty of God's big plan. But I love that right here in the middle, we get this passage. of of great purpose that reminds us so much about who we are, who we can be as we follow after Christ for salvation. And so I just want to look at a few things that this passage teaches us about who you are, if you've put your faith and your hope in Jesus. And the very first thing that we can claim about our identity in Christ is that we are his, we're his, we belong to Jesus. The story of David in the Old Testament is is just a roller coaster. Emotionally, physically, when it comes to holiness and spirituality, David's story is just this constant up and down of incredible triumphs, incredible successes, and then also deep and desperate failures. But it's also a story that at times has great beauty in it. And one of those places, where we see the beauty of the life that David lives. And in fact, one of those things that reminds us that David is a forerunner to Christ is the story of King David and a young man named Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth was the grandson of Saul. And this was the king who was in place before David. And David and Saul had a really bad relationship as it was. And now, after the death of Saul and his son Jonathan, David is the one who was anointed by God and ascends to the throne. And so right off the bat, anybody who could claim any sort of lineage to the throne was a threat to David and his reign. But also on top of that, not only was Mephibosheth a threat to David— but he was somebody who during this time period would have been considered a great liability on society as a whole because he couldn't walk. He had a physical disability. And so this ordinarily in any system during this time period would have been a person who was either run out of the kingdom forever or even put to death because not only did he not offer anything of substance from appearance-wise to the kingdom, but also he was a great threat to the king but that's not what David did. In fact, David sent some of his servants to go out and find Mephibosheth and bring him in to the kingdom. And he looks at Mephibosheth and he says, I'm gonna to restore to you everything that your grandfather Saul owned. All his lands, all his properties, his holdings, these all belong to you. And Mephibosheth looked at him, he says, why would you have such mercy on a dog like me? And David says, what are you talking about Dog. Nobody in my family is a dog because from this moment on, you eat at my table. From this moment on, you are a part of my life. You are a part of my kingdom. You are a part of my people. And David took this man who should be an enemy and brought him in as family and loved him and cared for him the rest of his life. When we look at the beginning of chapter 14, There's a stark comparison between the end of chapter 12, where we see this dragon menacing, breathing threats against God's people, standing on the edge of the sea, on the edge of this chaos that he wants to unleash against the people of God. But now here at the beginning of chapter 14, John says, look, and I get to see Mount Zion. He said, I see this great, powerful mountain, and on the top of it, 144,000 people standing And if you're here several weeks ago, we looked at this this number, this 144,000, as a symbolic picture of all of those who put their faith and their hope in Jesus, of the totality of God's people. And so John says, I see all of God's people, all of the followers of Christ standing on this mountain, safe and protected away from the enemies of God and the chaos that they bring. And he says, standing in their midst is the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins. And right here, we have this incredible reminder, as we have throughout the entirety of the book of Revelation, that God's people are never alone. That wherever we go, Christ is with us. That whatever may come against us, Christ is with us. From the beginning to the very end, Christ never leaves us, nor does he forsake us, but that he is always with his people. But when we look at this passage we see that the relationship between Jesus and his people is about a lot more than just proximity. It's not just that he's with them. It's not just that he's in their midst, but it says here that he looks and he sees Mount Zion and there stands the lamb and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Again, this idea of being sealed by God, but not simply sealed by God but his name is written on their heads. I love cartoons of really all various stripes. And I have since I was a kid, I'm kind of an animation junkie. I love all of it. And while Pixar is admittedly not my favorite animation provider in the world, I like it, it's fine, it's good. It's just not my favorite. I don't feel as passionately about it as some. I do think it's one of the most impressive that have ever existed. And a lot of that is because they tell these stories that just really get in your business and make you feel all kinds of things. And they want all this character depth that goes deep down, but also it's visually stunning and all these kind of things that happen. But one of the things that makes Pixar stand out so greatly is their attention to detail. I remember before the Incredibles 2 movie came out, what was it, last year or so, there was, there was a picture going around social media of one of the clips that was released from it, and it was a picture of Mr. Incredible, the dad from the family, and they zoomed in, and you could see all of these tiny hairs on his arm. And they're like, oh, this is why this movie takes so long to make, because this is the kind of care and attention that goes into these movies. But it's not just little visible details like that that Pixar puts their effort into. Sometimes it's subtle little details that don't seem to be very significant, but actually can add weight and depth to the characters in the stories. One of those things happens in the very first feature film that Pixar released, Toy Story, the original, about this boy and his toys, and they're alive when nobody else is around. You know how the whole thing works. And the main toy in this is a cowboy named Woody. He's got this really cool little outfit. It's kind of Howdy Doody meets the Lone Ranger. It's really awesome, really well-designed character. But one part of Woody's costume is something that we very rarely see because it finds itself in a place that's not very visible, on the bottom of his boot. But on the bottom of that boot is written the name Andy, the name of the kid that owns him, the name of the kid that loves him. And all throughout the series, really, when there's any time where Woody is questioning his character or his worth or his value as a toy, you see these little pensive moments where he looks down at his shoe and he reads the name and it reminds him of his worth. And now here in Revelation, we see this on a cosmic, epic, eternal scale. As John says, I see all these people and God has written the name of Jesus in his own name on their heads. He's marked them as his own. A multitude of people around the Lamb that belong to God. When we look through the Bible, the Bible says a lot of things about us before Christ. It tells us that all have sinned, that we are sinners, that we are children of wrath and enemies of God because of that sin, that we are lost and wondering and don't have any real sense of identity in and of itself. And so we try to create it for ourselves. And yet on the other side of the gospel, on the other side of Christ, by trusting in the lamb of God, by trusting in Jesus and his work on the cross and in the empty tomb, the Bible says that we become children of God, that he writes his name on us that he claims ownership of us. And we no longer wear our sin and the identity that comes from that, but we wear the name of Jesus. To help understand this, Jesus once told a story about a man that had two sons. And one of those sons was kind of a terrible person. And he took all this money from his father and he went and wasted it on a lavish lifestyle and all these parties and all these ridiculous things. And then finally, when he hits rock bottom, he thinks... I got to go home, but there's no way that my father's going to love me anymore. There's no way my father is going to welcome me back as a son, but you know what? His slaves, they get a few meals a day. They're more taken care of than I am here and now. And so maybe I can go back and just ask my father to receive me as a slave or a servant. And he goes back. But when he does, the father sees him and runs to him grabs him in an embrace, kisses him on the cheek and brings him in and throws a party saying, my son was dead, but now he's alive. You're not my slave, you're not my servant. It doesn't matter how far you've run or how far you've gone, you belong to me. And so what I have belongs to you. Paul says that we haven't been given a spirit of slavery, but one of adoption so that we can cry out, Abba, Father to God. And so we have this promise that if you are in Christ today, then you are so much more than you know, because the God of the universe has written his name on you and has called you a son and a daughter sealed with the name of the God that spoke everything into existence. And so it's our responsibility to learn to see our identity, not in our sin, not in the things that we've done or the things that we think have marked us or identified us because of how we see ourselves or how other people have seen us and our actions and our behaviors. We don't identify ourselves by what we see in the mirror or what we see in our bank account, but we identify ourselves because of what God sees in us. And when God looks at each and every one of us who have put our faith in him, he sees us as his child sealed with the name of his son. So, we need to find that identity in the fact that we are His, but also we are worshipers. We belong to Christ, but also we worship Christ. And we've seen all through the book of Revelation the noise of both heaven and earth. When we see the noise in heaven, it's joyful. It's these these shouts of of thunder and claps of of the lightning moving around the throne of God, but also we hear the voices of the creatures around the throne and all of the elders and the hosts of heaven singing their worship songs to God day and night over and over. But the noise on earth is, is different. It's violence and it's battles and it's sin and it's the loudness of the chaos that we've created in this world. But then comes verse two. John says, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. And the voice I heard was like the harpist playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So now we see a song break out on earth. It starts in heaven and it echoes down into the mouths of these 144,000 people, into the mouths of these children of God. And this is a surprising song because it's a new song. And when we look at the songs that have been sung in Revelation to this point, so many of them are described as songs that have been sung from eternity to eternity. Songs of the creatures and the elders around the throne singing about the holiness and the glory of God. And they sing those songs over and over and over again, day and night. But now a new song breaks into that repetition. And what's even more is not only is this a new song, but it's an exclusive song because it's the song of salvation. And I love the contrast that's shown here because we see this picture of the four living creatures and the elders around the throne. And we've seen the the closeness that they have to God, that they are fully in his presence day day, day in and day out, and they have a deep intimacy with God. And yet not even those creatures and those elders around the throne could learn this part of who he is, but we can. We get to sing that song of salvation a song that the angels in heaven can't sing, a song that the elders around the throne aren't singing, a song that these creatures that hold up the very throne of God, they can't sing this song, but we can. And when we do, we are declaring a truth about God that was given exclusively to us. Think about that. The God who has existed for all of eternity past, will exist for all of eternity future. The God who surrounded himself with all of these hosts of heaven has revealed himself in this incredible way, chose to save part of his character and part of who he is for us. And he revealed that distinctly and specially to humanity. And so because of that, we should sing this song constantly. Because of that, we should worship the God who has saved us on a daily basis. Scripture teaches that from the very beginning, we were made to be image bearers of God. And because of that, we were made to be worshipers of God. And so when we don't do that, when we don't use every moment of our lives to honor and glorify and worship God, we are being less than human. We are being less than what we were made to be. We have a responsibility and an occupation to be worshipers of God. And we've been given this special piece of that worship that only we can fill. And so we need to be constantly worshiping the God who saved us. We need to declare our salvation as worshipers, not just through our songs that we sing, even though we do that through the songs that we sing, but we also make that declaration In every moment of our lives, whether we're eating or drinking, doing it all for the glory of God, recognizing that we are able to do it with a new identity because Christ has stepped in where we couldn't do anything for ourselves. He offered that salvation as a free gift so that we could claim this identity. And so we need to be active worshipers making sure to take no moment for granted, but always glorifying the God who saved us and proclaiming the good news of what Christ did for us through his death and his resurrection. Because we're his. And because of that, we should be worshipers. And we can do those things because we have been redeemed. The reason why we can sing this song begins in a not so positive place. The reason why the the, the creatures around the throne can't sing the song of salvation is because they don't know sin. They haven't experienced that rebellion against God. And so the fact that we can sing this song begins with a reminder that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin, what sin pays us is death. That's the reward of our sin. But not only does sin pay us in death, but sin costs us something as well. And what sin costs us is a broken relationship with the God of the universe. We talk a lot about forgiveness, but often when we do, we reduce forgiveness down to a mere pardon of guilt. Did that transaction with God, as we go to God, we say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. And God says, it's okay, thank you for apologizing. Go on with your day. And he waves a magic wand and then everything is all taken care of and we work to rebuild our relationship. But that's not the fullness of what forgiveness is. When you look through, especially the New Testament, forgiveness is always referenced as a payment of death, or excuse me, of debt and death. Technically, also true. So wasn't really a mistake, was it? Debt and death. When Jesus tells parables about forgiveness, it's always parables of someone being pardoned from a great overwhelming debt. The language that's used in the New Testament is the act of paying for something on someone else's behalf, of being a surety, of being an endorser, of stepping in with someone that has this great weight that they can't remove and taking it on yourself. And so when we look at forgiveness in this salvation sense, it's a picture of God buying us out of our sin. It's a picture of God paying for our eternity. It's the fact that because of our sin, we have amassed this debt and this death that we couldn't pay for. And Jesus comes in and he pays it on our behalf. He redeems us. He buys us out of our sin and our shame and our brokenness. And again, we use the term redeemed a lot. We talk about being redeemed. We talk about God being a redeemer. We named our church using that word that we believe in a redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. But I think too often that term is something that we use, but rarely a reality that we consider. Rarely do we really think every single day of my life, I am someone who has been redeemed, that I owed a debt that I couldn't pay. And so Jesus stepped in to pay that for me. And because of that, it shows that I have great worth to Christ. That it it did cost God something to save me. That he didn't just wave a magic wand and clear over our sins. That he paid that debt on our behalf. Our salvation and our relationship cost something of him. He didn't simply save us, but he paid for us. And that should be a reminder that we have great value to God. And sometimes I can feel weird to say out loud because it it, it just feels a little strange. It feels a little self-important. It feels like we're taking and, and moving and twisting the point of the gospel because we know that God deserves all the honor and all the glory and all the praise, but that doesn't mean that we don't have value. And it's not because of what we do. It's not because of our personalities or our charm or our wisdom or all of these things. We have value because we were created by God in the image of God. And even though we messed all of that up with our sin, God still loved us enough to put a value on us. And that value wasn't the two cents of a sparrow, like Jesus said, even though God values the sparrows. When it came time for God to pay for us, he did so by giving his one and only son. And that means that if you are in Christ, you are valued so deeply by God. It can be easy sometimes to look in the mirror and feel like we have no worth or value at all because of all the things. We can all make our own individual lists of things that should make us completely valueless. And yet all of those things, we can stack them up on the scale. And then Jesus comes in and he puts his sacrifice on the other side and it can't compare. Part of our identity in Christ is that we have been redeemed. And because of that, we can know that we have immense value to God. And then finally, we see that we are blameless. But I feel like that should have a question mark. We are blameless? But that's what it says here in verse four and five. It says, it is those who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits of God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. But that doesn't seem to fit the resume of really anyone. And so maybe, maybe, maybe I was wrong. Maybe he isn't talking about us. Maybe this 144,000 is something different. Because we can look through and start checking boxes. Do I believe that I'm saved? Yes, check. Do I believe that I'm redeemed? Yes. sometimes I don't feel it or sometimes I don't act like it in the right way. But yes, check. I believe that I've been redeemed. Am I a worshiper of God? I'm not always great at it, but yes, I am a worshiper of God. Do I believe that I'm a child of God? Absolutely, I believe that I'm a child of God. Do I believe that I'm blameless? No, no, I very much do not. Especially when we look at the description here. It says it's those who haven't defiled themselves of women for they are virgins. It's those who no lie was found in their mouths for they are blameless. We can look at that and say, no, that, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like something that could describe me. I think there is a temptation, especially when we're trying to be faithful in doctrine and theology, when we're trying to be faithful to give God all of the glory and honor and praise for all that he's done, there is a temptation to emphasize the weight of our sin in the language that we use. You see this especially in a lot of writings with the Puritans, these were men and women who loved Jesus deeply, had a profound love for doctrine and theology and the richness of all these things. But a lot of times when you see writers, even if people like John Bunyan and John Owen writing things about themselves, the language can be quite harsh, calling themselves worms, saying things like things that come out of our own mouths, that I'm nothing but a sinner saved by grace. And these things, they sound humble, they sound like they're drenched in the humility of giving God the glory and taking all of the emphasis away from ourselves. But the reality is this isn't humility, but it's forgetting what was accomplished on the cross by Jesus. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 61, a passage of scripture that Jesus quoted as he was revealing his purpose and ministry in the world. In verse 10 of that chapter, it says, "'I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. "'My soul shall exult in the Lord, "'for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. "'He has covered me with the robe of righteousness "'as a bridegroom decks himself "'like a priest with a beautiful headdress "'and as a bride adorns herself with jewels.'" This is what Jesus was coming into the world to do for us spiritually to wrap us in the clothes of grace, to wrap us in the robes of his righteousness. And when we talk about the forgiveness and the redemption of sins that we experience through Christ, Jesus doesn't simply turn and look the other way from our sins, but scripture tells us that he separates it from us as far as the east is from the west, and that Jesus steps in and he covers us up in his righteousness. And the robe of Christ's righteousness is not one that does an impartial job of covering up our sin and our shame and our guilt, but does so from top to bottom where not even a trace and stain of that guilt and shame can bleed through. But so often in our lives, when it comes to addressing our sin, we wear the same baggage of condemnation, guilt, and shame Forgetting the message of the gospel where Paul says that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And so our response to sin should be what it is. We should hate it. We should resist temptation. We should run from it at all costs. But when we fall into it, we come into an attitude of humility and confession and repentance, but not overwhelming sin, guilt, shame, and brokenness in the sense of being condemned. We have a broken and a contrite heart because we know that sin is not who we're supposed to be in Christ. But we don't allow it to become the victor over our lives falling into habitual sin. And also we don't allow it to become the conqueror of our lives, leading us to believe that we're not who Christ says that we are. And so we are called to live without being immersed in that guilt or in that shame, fleeing from sin, praying for protection from temptation to sin. When we sin, falling at the feet of Christ and confessing those sins and recognize them as something that Christ died to deliver us out of, but then also recognizing the beauty of the gospel that God still sees us as pure and whole and blameless and stands us back up and calls us to continue the work that he has set before us. And we do that because we are living with the anticipation that one day our identity as blameless that has been spoken to us by God will one day be our ever-present reality, knowing that one day he will wipe away the stain of sin once and for all, and we will not only be saved, we'll not only be redeemed, but we will be glorified and perfected in Christ once and for all. And so, We need to learn to not see ourselves as perfect, not see ourselves as needing and longing each and every day for the grace and mercy of Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins, and to continue each day looking at ourselves like Paul did, that I am absolutely the chief of sinners. But as John Newton once says, we have a much greater savior and that he is conforming us to his image. And so, yes, we are sinners saved by grace, but we are not simply sinners saved by grace. But as we saw in our passages over the past couple of weeks, we have been made saints in the presence of God. He has adorned us as a kingdom of priests and has equipped us for the good work of his ministry. And if we allow all of these things to hold us back, then we'll never be able to live out the purpose that he has set out for us before the foundation of the world. So just in case there was anything unclear, Sin is bad, and we should resist it at all costs. But sin is not final and not ultimate. And we have been given victory over it through Christ. We have been given deliverance from the shame and the guilt because of what Jesus has done in wrapping us with his righteousness. And there has been given on us an expectation that we will press forward, constantly seeking to be more and more like Christ each and every day so that we can live a life worthy of the calling that he's given us. That if God sees us as blameless, then we should strive to be that way as best as we possibly can until we recognize it in its fullness when Christ makes all things new, including us. So we're his, we're worshipers. We've been redeemed and we are blameless. And then finally, we are blessed. In the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus starts talking about the kind of people that are blessed. And it doesn't seem like the kind of people that we would often associate with that term. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. And then he says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And now here in Revelation 14, we see another beatitude added. In verse 13, he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And so even as the 144,000 stand on this mountain representing God's protection and provision, we still see that death is an ever-present part of our reality and something that saved Christ returning before we draw our last breath that each and every one of us will experience. But Jesus says, even as you experience that, even if you lose your life for the sake of Christ, then you are blessed because you pass from this life into the fullness of that hope where we we'll they be able to recognize once and for all that all of these things are so very true about us that we'll see the fullness of our redemption. We'll be able to worship God without any of the brokenness that exists in our lives. We will be able to be recognized inwardly and outwardly as totally and completely blameless, and we will know once and for all that we belong to Christ. And so there is blessing. That's why Paul said that he had this tension in his life of longing to be with the church, but even more so, longing to be with Christ, saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. And now the spirit reverberates that sentiment, saying as long as you live, labor and work for the cause of the gospel, Live in the identity that you belong to Jesus and use your life as worshipers of him, doing your best, striving to match what God sees of you of being blameless and above reproach and using your life for good works and showing what it looks like to be reconciled by God and do that until you draw your last breath. And once you do, you can rest. You can rest from those labors. You can rest from those expectations. You can rest from the things that make you weary. And you can trust in the fact that your labor and your deeds will follow you until the day that Christ returns and makes all things right and all things new. And so this is who we are, whether we feel it all the time, whether we believe it all the time or not. If you've put your faith in Christ, you belong To Christ and He has written His name on you. If you belong to Christ, you have the responsibility to be a worshiper of God, and He has set you free so that you can do that. You have been redeemed by God, and He has paid a price to rescue you out of your sin and out of your brokenness. And because of that, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, he takes the righteousness of Christ and He wraps you up in it. So that no matter who you were, no matter who you may still be from time to time. When God looks at you, he sees you as holy and blameless, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. And because of that, no matter what comes, we are blessed. And it's time that we live like that on a regular basis. It's time that we live out our identity in everything that we do, working to be people that reflect the image of our Father, worshiping him, going out with the message of redemption on our lips, and again, striving to stay away from sin, rejecting sin, fleeing from our enemies and clinging to Christ, becoming more and more like him each and every day. And then taking all of those labors, all that work that we do to live out that identity and entrusting it in the hands of our God who can do perfectly far beyond what we could ever imagine doing with our imperfect gifts and offerings. And so let's find rest and peace in our identity, but not complacency, and put our identity to work each and every day of our lives so that people, as they see us, hear us, and experience our love and our service for them, will be drawn to the God who makes all things new. Let's pray. God, sometimes it's really hard to think well of ourselves because we know ourselves. God, it's hard to utter some of these words and read some of these words, these things that you say about me, these things that you say about us here in this room, anyone who's put their faith and hope in you. Because, God, we have an enemy that is constantly whispering lies and accusations. But, God, sometimes he doesn't even have to do that because we do a pretty good job of it on our own. Not only to ourselves, but we are pretty good at, at, at using those lies and accusations against other people. so God, it can be really easy to forget who you say that we are. But God, we thank you that it's true anyway. That not because of the works that we've done, not because of how good we are, not because of how special we think we are at times, but simply because you love us. You gave your one and only son To not just forgive our sins, to not just give us eternal life, but to change who we are, to give us a new name, to make the proclamation over us that the old has passed and the new has come, that we are new creations, to write your name on. To take the old clothes of sin and shame and guilt and cover those up with the clothes of the righteousness that only Jesus could live out. So God, thank you that you've declared us good and worthy and of value. God, that you know our sin more than we do and yet you see us as blameless. God, you know that everything in us wants to be your enemies and yet you call us your children. We often use our lives to do things that are so contrary to who you are and yet you have called us to worship you. So God, I just pray that you help us first come to grips with the reality of our identity in Christ. you teach us to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Seeking to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Not recognizing grace as license to sin, but as freedom from it. With a desire to be above reproach in all that we do. And as Paul says, not to use our members, not to use our bodies as objects of unrighteousness, but to walk in the goodness that you have given us. So the one day when it's time to lay down our labors, to lay down our works, that our lives would echo throughout this world long after we're gone, singing the new song of salvation until the day you come to make all things right and all things new. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus.